Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. There are nearly 20 million military vets in the U.S. And each week, we focus on their stories. This is CBS Eye on Veterans. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans, reporting for ConnectingVets.com. I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs, and uh, we're going to lead off the show today with uh, kind of an update about whether or not veterans will be the ones to finally force Congress to address the cannabis issue. I know it seems like a touchy subject marijuana right i mean we've been talking about this for years and it always seems like when you get to the federal level you know va won't talk to vets about it or they can't really deal with it because it's illegal on the federal level and the federal level is different than 36 state levels now and it just seems like round and round round we go with the silly 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 show about this nonsense this unwillingness for federal authorities to look at marijuana look at pot look at cannabis with the efficacy and the seriousness that it deserves as a medicine, not as just a way to get high. So with that, I was very pleased to hear recently that friend of the show, former guest, Brian Buckley, former Marsoc Raider, Marine Special Operations, he's been on the forefronts of this. And when we spoke about a year ago, we talked more about his company, the Hellman Valley Growers Company, which is, of course, a brand of cannabis out in California, cannabis products, vapes, edibles, the, the like. Uh, but to hear Brian speak about why he got involved just made my jaw drop. Uh, you know, we're talking about a Marsoc combat veteran, a Marine Raider team leader, uh, you know, led a 20 man team. Not only training, advising, and assisting our Afghan commando friends, but um, just distinguished himself on the battlefield and took some serious losses in the name of helping that nation find freedom. And as he returned back to the States, uh, you know, developed an interest and found the efficacy in his own life, how it helped treat his depression, how it helped treat his just, you know, post-war hangover. And I was especially pleased when I got an email recently from somebody out there at Hellman Valley growers company that said, Hey, you know, Brian's in DC right now meeting with senators on the Hill. And I was like, Whoa, 
this has actually got some legs now. He didn't just form a cannabis company, but he's told me from the outset he's going to do testing and research to show these guys what the deal is and that we're not just asking for some recreational, happy, happy, fun time, but that there's some serious legs behind this cannabis argument most especially as it relates to veterans. So joining me now to tell me more about his recent trip to Capitol Hill, which I'm sure was filled with fun and frustration, Marine Corps MARSOC combat vet, Brian Buckley. How are you, bud? I'm great. Great to be here. Yeah. So, uh, you know, as we just said there in the lead in, um, interesting, interesting. You've actually now not only done the retail side of cannabis, but begun some research, but now you've got made some, made some inroads into the Senate and into, you know, our congressional leaders. Tell me about your trip to the Hill. Yeah. It was a really interesting time on Capitol Hill. It, you know, it's kind of when we were planning this out, I was working in conjunction with another group that I'm affiliated with called the Veterans Action Council. And it was kind of like, hey, why don't we go after people who they don't have cannabis programs in their state? And we can have a conversation with them and see what we can do. And I kind of looked at like, you know, everything in cannabis has kind of matured enough with Congress that you actually have, you know, it's not just like Blumenhauer anymore or former Representative Rohrbacher. There's others who are coming out and are putting cannabis legislation forward. So why don't we just go meet with them and pour some gasoline on the fire and see what we can do to help and assist to get this across the goal line. So we kind of had a little bit of half and half. Um, ultimately, some of the meetings where you had people that they didn't have a cannabis program in, one, you're not meeting with the principal. It was really just their staff. And I kind of get where they're coming from if I'm putting myself in that representative or senator's shoes. You know, this is more, it's still a state issue. Uh, and you really got to work with the state assembly, the state senate, and the governor. They got to get on board to get a program in uh, their their respective state. So it's not necessarily like a representative from this district of this state will come in and say, hey, why don't we have a cannabis program? It's going to get moving. There's a lot more to it. But, you know, we did take some meetings with some people who did have some cannabis programs out there. You know, I was a little disappointed when the ones who literally had cannabis legislation going forward, they weren't there to meet with us and we had to meet with their staff. Uh, that to me just kind of showed an indication like here you do. We got veterans coming to speak with you, wanting to help, wanting to provide some input, and you don't have the time to meet with us. So how serious are you about your cannabis initiative? Is this more of a check in a box because it's a trending thing? Uh, are you really kind of in the right mindset? Are you talking to the right people? Do you understand what's happening on the ground? So those were some of my biggest disappointments. But I had some really great meetings and I met with the actual, you know, principal themselves. And we really, it was extremely productive. And honestly, it was my, really my first time lobbying on Capitol Hill with cannabis. And people I, I was with were like, we've never seen this before where you literally had staffs and the person there opening up books and being like, all right, let's game plan on some things that we could do. And the really big talking point that was happening out there was the Safe Banking Act, which would allow cannabis companies essentially to operate like a regular bank. We would have FDIC approval. You could bank at Citibank or wherever. You could get loans. You can do regular things, which would greatly reduce the barriers that we are facing in already a highly competitive, highly taxed, highly regulated market. Okay, so many follow-up questions. First, quickly, who were the senators or the congressmen that didn't show up? Can you name some names? Yeah, I mean, the one person I was really disappointed was uh, Senator Cory Booker. He was one of our first meetings. Um, we met with his staff. He wasn't there. Uh, didn't really get a reason why. 
you know, I'm sure he's busy. He's got things going on. But to me, there's a lot of holes with that bill. Uh, you know, I essentially told their staff, I'm like, listen, your bill is way overtaxed and way overregulated. It's essentially California on steroids. I mean, they're looking at putting a 25% federal tax that would help with social equity initiatives, which is all well and good. But you got to look at things in terms of California where you have people paying 40 to 60% tax at retail. So you just throw on another 25% on top of that. You are just helping the illicit market and the cartels get a bigger foothold because people right now, inflation's high. We're all going through a rough time. We get it. Why would they want to go to a legal shop when they can go somewhere else and buy something at half the cost? And it's just, and you know, it's not so much a financial thing. You also got to look at safety because these illegal uh, shops, these illegal grows, they're not putting their product through third-party state testing. So you don't know what you're putting in your body. And, you know, we clearly have a massive fentanyl issue that for whatever reason gets suppressed. We can't talk about it, even though it's probably killing more people than COVID. No one wants to bring it up. But those things are happening and people are dying from stuff. So it's like, you know, guys, again, where's the common sense legislation on it? And I mean, for a guy that's really progressive, I hear him on the left. He's out there. He's got a lot of ideas about how to do things. And, you know, it says he's a champion for the every guy. But now here are everyday guys, everyday men and women that have served their country that could benefit from this medicine. He didn't even show up to the meeting. And mm-hmm. his state proposal for the fine folks of New Jersey includes up to what 25% tax oh, on top of something a- that'll get taxed on the state level. And then there's got to be some retail markup so somebody makes some money. I can see how that'd be totally frustrating. Yeah. And that's a, and that's a federal bill they want to push forward. So it doesn't really do a lot for us, essentially. I mean, it's going to decriminalize. It does a little bit on the scheduling side, but it's more or less, you know, the federal government coming in and saying, all right, give us some money um, with not much progress for us. And, you know, when I when I was asking them about it, they were kind of shocked that I said it's way too heavily taxed. And they're like, well, we had a conversation with the uh, Treasury Department. They thought it was good. And then they said we thought that, you know, the states would reduce their taxes to accommodate the federal tax. And I'm like, listen. You know, I'm in California. I'm like, it's all well and good. And, you know, they do a lot of great things. But at the end of the day, they want their money. And yeah. they are not. I mean, we we talk to people here in California about reducing taxes. And, you know, they kind of do a sleight of hand. Like, OK, they got rid of the cultivation tax. We are the only state in America with a cultivation tax. Well, they move that. And it's kind of like a sleight of hand. They're just going to add it on to something else. So it, it's not going to go anywhere. So it's essentially like you're just going to kill the industry. And it's not like we're pumping our chest. We want to work with you to maybe give you some feedback of not just what we're facing as veterans and the suicide epidemic that we're dealing with. All right. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy vet Phil Briggs. Now we're going to get back to my interview with Marine Corps Special Operations Combat Vet Brian Buckley. He's the founder of the Hellman Valley Growers Company in California, a retail cannabis brand. And from his own experience with treating the wounds of war with medical marijuana to his company's clinical research trials, he's one of the vets that is seriously pushing our elected leaders to stop dragging their feet on this issue. Now, we recently met with members of Congress in D.C. and how veterans have a strong Republican representative on their side. Strong because she's also been a cannabis patient. After discovering how it helped her recover from the psychological wounds stemming from a sexual trauma she experienced years ago. 
one of the rock stars we met was Representative Nancy Meese, who's a uh, freshman congresswoman out of uh, South Carolina. And um, probably she should. I don't think she's going to have any issues getting reelected. I know uh, President Trump tried to primary her out uh, back uh, during the primary season, but she's in a deep red state, uh, deep red area, and she won by seven points. And she has a very, to me, it's the most common sense legislation out there. And I encourage everyone to take a look at it. It is called the State Reform Act. And essentially what it will do is legalize cannabis. It would deschedule cannabis. It would allow the VA doctors to prescribe cannabis to veterans. And it has a 3% federal tax on it, which is completely doable. Because once cannabis moves to a Schedule 3 or below, we no longer have to deal with tax code 280E, where you basically have four companies doing one thing, but that way you can move your money around legally. It's totally legit. So just having that eliminate where you can just have one business doing one thing versus four to make it all work is tremendous. Uh, that would be huge for us. And again, 3%, not that big of a deal. That, that wouldn't really rock the boat. And she, you know, it was a really great speech she gave. We were at a, um, we were working with the uh, National Cannabis Industry Association, NCIA, and we kind of went off on our own doing our veteran thing, but they had a cocktail hour on one night and Nancy Mace was there speaking. And she got up in front of everyone and just said, listen, guys, I'm a conservative Republican. I believe in cannabis. I was a cannabis patient. She goes, I was raped at 16. I dropped out of high school. They had me on all these opiates. It just wasn't working for me. And she's like, and at the time, my journey was through cannabis that kind of helped me get myself and find myself again. And then she went on to become the first female to ever graduate from the, the Citadel. So she, you know, has been there, done that, and she's doing some really great things. And, you know, she was very big. She wanted to take a picture with a bunch of veterans. Um, I'm, you know, working with her staff and, you know, like her one uh, chief of staff, uh, Will, he was, you know, he came up, he found me. He goes, Hey, Brian, hold on. He, he puts his hand up. He's like, He's like, Nancy, come on over here. She walks up. He's like, hey, this is Brian Buckley. And she put her hand out. She goes, Brian, I hear we got to talk about some things. I mean, she was she was in it ready to go. And we just had a good kind of casual conversation, kind of couple of things that was going on. And she's like, you're going to be in my office tomorrow. And I'm like, yeah, I'll be there. She was like, great. Look forward to uh, seeing you. And when we showed up, she was there just kind of waiting for us, ready to go. And, you know, just a very just common sense person. I love talking with her. I do think her bill needs to get more rec uh, recognition. I, I do think there's a little bit of kind of a House of Cards thing going on in terms of, you know, Democrat, Republicans and kind of shoo-shooing her bill a little bit. But this is something that, you know, she's getting bipartisan support and I think would work really great. So we're doing a lot of work with her office. I mean, all three of those offices even asked, too, they're like, hey, we'd like you guys to come out here and, you know, have you speak on some committees doing a veterans roundtable. You know, using you guys to kind of come up here with the real world examples you're bringing to the table on top of the research that you guys have been approved for. I mean, we're, we're kind of ready to go. So, you know, it, it was great. Like we need them, but they also need us. So it was a good kind of synergy was formed at that point. And now we're in kind of constant conversation with them and, um, you know, some really interesting things. I mean, I had like the Wall Street Journal reach out to me and we're talking about this and getting everything going. So I'm hoping to shed more light on. This is not just a, you know, a Democratic initiative. Republicans have some really good stuff out there. And this is where I tell everyone, I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. I'm an American. And if you make sense to me, you're going to get my vote.
Interesting. Interesting. Um, I'll say this is about that whole thing you just shared. Uh, I find it incredibly compelling that both you guys were survivors of some sort of trauma. Yours, yeah. of course, a combat-related trauma, which combat is trauma. I mean, it's traumatic to be in that situation. Hers yeah. was a sexual trauma. Both of you treated and were helped, healed, or otherwise, you know, made made whole by the use of cannabis. And yet we're still here, you know, discussing it as if it's this thing that no one knows of. And should we let Pandora out the box? I mean, geez, there's people with real world experience. And I'm super glad to hear that you connected with her on that level and got into the weeds as deep as you did. No pun intended with making a game plan about some legislation. And yeah, I, did, and- I, did, I didn't even really mean to make that pun right there. No, so no, but hey, I, roll with it, man. Let's go. <laughs> I want to roll into um, again another pun. Holy cow, they're coming out. <laughs> uh, jump into this article that you recently had. Uh, why Republicans will steal cannabis from Democrats? Um, I, I, you've touched on a couple things here throughout our conversation that sound very interesting, and in that Republicans who are typically, or at least traditionally, have been, they didn't want to discuss this. This wasn't. Yeah a conservative issue because you know it sounds like we're just talking about sin here um i couldn't help but notice a couple r's here that we've discussed with as folks that you really have found promise in the future with so share with me why you think republicans will steal cannabis from democrats you know it's it's kind of simple it's common sense legislation i think people again they're trying to do the right thing by piling all this stuff putting the burden on the tax uh, the cannabis community uh, via tax that we can kind of do all these initiatives and we have all this exorbitant money. Uh, we don't, I mean, it's, it's tough as it is. I mean, again, I'm in California, very heavily regulated, very heavily taxed. But when you see a person like the Joyce's of the world or the Nancy Mace's of the world, and you know, like, you know, Scott Peters, a Democrat, but working arm in arm with Republicans, it's just really motivating, I guess, to see their passion and how much they want to get this done. Again, Representative Mace, she is a patient. Like she gets it. This is not someone who's like, you know, some governor who got in trouble for touching people that he shouldn't be touching. And all of a sudden he goes, cannabis for everyone, you know, trying to just throw a, a little faint out there or something. They really believe in what this can do. And they know that, you know, the road we're going down, especially with veterans, is not working again. You've had much more people die here in America than they did on the battlefield. I mean, it's more dangerous, dangerous for us to be in America that it is to be in Fallujah, Iraq, or the Helmand River Valley of Afghanistan, which is just completely unacceptable. I mean, we all come back from combat with demons, and you never get rid of those demons, but you got to live, learn to live above them. And for me, cannabis is something that gives me that little performance enhancing to beat my demons, especially at nighttime. And it was just, you know, I, I was just very moved by them. I mean, it, you, you're sitting there, you're looking them in the eyes. I get it politicians, you know, all that stuff, but there was just something else there and just kind of a natural, they were very comfortable talking. I mean, there was a couple of curse words coming out, you know, it was just kind of like, yeah, just sitting around the bar talking with your friends. I mean, it was a really cool synergy with them and I'm excited to help them and do whatever we can do to help get their bills across. And again, one thing we are going to kind of work on heavily right now is the safe banking act. You know, that's something that again, is 18 votes short in the Senate. You know, once we get it for some of the people out there, basically means we could bank in all the banks. We could be treated like a regular business by banks, get loans, all the good stuff. But they want some social equity tied onto it. So we're kind of looking at a thing like, you know, Joyce's Safe Harbor Act, you know, stuff for veterans. There is a bill out there. I forget the name, but it's an Alaska representative where 
if you had a cannabis misdemeanor, be automatically expunged. So we're kind of hoping that might be enough to kind of check in a box for both parties that they say, okay, let's get the safe banking through. Because it's not like the banks don't want our money. I mean, they're like, yeah, like give us FDIC approval for these guys so we can bring them in and it'll be great. And that will help the industry really grow. And again, I'm really big on the State Reform Act from Nancy Mace. I mean, her bill will not only help us grow, it'll help us thrive. Right on. Brian Buckley, Semper Fi, always faithful to uh, all the fellow veterans out there and uh, appreciate everything that Hellman Valley Growers Company is doing and the Battle Brothers Foundation. Doing good work, and I look forward to more updates. You are now officially my cannabis correspondent on Capitol Hill. You got, we'll do like some live next time I'm there. You know, just live from Capitol Hill. It'll be a good time. <laughs> just get me in a room with one of those elected officials. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a good time. Trust me. All right, welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy Vet Phil Briggs, getting to know some of the greatest veterans in the country. And uh, we'll just call this episode Book Club because you know I love a good veteran author. You know we've had some really, really great, great books reviewed here on this. And uh, this week, we're going to talk about the book Always Faithful, a story of the war in Afghanistan, the fall of Kabul, and the unshakable bond between a Marine and an interpreter. It is by Major Tom Schumann and his interpreter, Zach, and it's an incredible story. In August of 2021, America ended the longest war, and as the world watched the shocking scene at Kabul International Airport, Marine Major Tom Schumann fought, both behind the scenes and through a social media campaign to get his friend and former Terp, Zach, out before he and his family were discovered by the Taliban. It tracks the parallel lives of these two men who each spent their childhood in some fear and peril and poverty and turned to war in an attempt to build a meaningful future. And uh, to talk about their lives and how they intersected there in the Hellman Valley and they formed a brotherhood, eventually culminating in Zach's harrowing 11th hour rescue. The book is an intensely personal and unique ground level look at the war in Afghanistan. So with that intro, let's say hello to Major Tom. It's not lost on you, Tom, that I love saying that for classic rock purposes. But how are you, Devil Dog? Hey, good. Get some raw. Happy to be here. Well, let's get into some action adventure. Ground level view of the war in Afghanistan. Some intense scenes of combat and sacrifices. You went from over eager Marine to hardened by combat. Share with me a little bit about what this book will sh- show us with some of that ground level view of fighting. Certainly the, you know, the, the scenes that happen in Afghanistan, whether it's, uh, my first deployment as a platoon commander and, and staying in during some of the heaviest fighting in the war or, or when I went back as a recon JTAC guy, uh, and an advisor, I, 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 those are real opportunities for me to showcase some of the heroes of the war, uh, some of my personal heroes, and, and that's these men who were, were walking point through IED fields and minefields and some of our snipers and some of uh, just the grunt, this this 18-year-old enlisted grunt who um, day after day goes out into the fray and their their stories are worth telling and th- their heroics almost become routine in the battle rhythm of, of some of this war and uh, just truly exceptional people that, that we got to fight alongside. And, and so, yeah, you, you'll get a little bit of in- insight, I think, into, uh, into some of the most kinetic action of America's longest war. Share with me how you ended up meeting your interpreter, Zach, and walk me through a little bit of the bond, the brotherhood, starting with um, 
you know, you young Marine officer, what kind of officer were you and walk me through what it was like to go through that whole thing? Yeah, certainly aggressive. I think still an aggressive officer, but I think maybe a little bit better judgment, uh, hopefully develops over time. Uh, there's some examples in the book where, uh, my judgment was not excellent and I got myself into some situations in my Marine citizen situations. We, we were doing local security patrols, ambush patrols, but we were, we were with the Afghan army. We were going into the villages every day. And so having an interpreter who can help facilitate, uh, not only translating English to Pashto or English to Dari, but, uh, Help me understand the cultural nuances in the villages. Help me to understand any cultural blind spots that I might have. And so initially the first couple of interpreters I had quit or, uh, became a liability during a firefight or didn't speak English. And, and finally, uh, after a few weeks, Zach comes on deck and he's, he's this, uh, kind of healthy looking, strong young man who is 18 years old and he, he speaks English, uh, really well and he's a, He's passed to by, you know, uh, his, his upbringing. And so, yeah, r- right away, his value to the platoon, uh, I mean, it was immediate. And, and but it, it, it over time became much more than a transactional value as someone who could just translate for me. He really became someone who fought alongside us, took the same risk that we did and became a, a, a brother and, and just another one of the members of the platoon throughout the course of that deployment. Yeah, you talk about the cultural connections that you can make through an interpreter. Give me an example of like something an interpreter could do when you go into a village. The the population is neutral at best, generally on the side of the Taliban. And so anything that you do when you go into someone's house to alienate them or offend them, you've maybe now maybe they maybe they were passively supporting the Taliban, now to actively supporting the Taliban to to, you know, letting the Taliban use their home to shoot at us or to do the resupply. And so there are certain Muslim customs and courtesies that we wanted to make sure that we adhere to and abided by. And I'm not Muslim. And I uh, and, and, and so for Zach to help us understand those nuances and make sure that that we were uh, properly respectful and, and kind of adhering to any of those customs and courtesies, I think, helped when we were in the village maybe not convince anyone to join our side, but also maybe to ensure that they didn't start to actively support the Taliban. And I know the book documents kind of how your point of view changed after seeing the ground level combat, after having to do mission after mission after mission. So did Zach's, his kind of perspective of seeing American soldiers, seeing war as a child, and then growing into becoming a man that would fight alongside you and dare risk his life. Share with me a little bit about Zach's evolution. I think that's what's one of the more interesting aspects of the book is that we hear so much about Afghanistan. We, many of us have grown up with Afghanistan in the headlines, but all we get is the, the poverty or the war. But Afghanistan is, is a home, you know, to, to many people. And you get a real pastoral view of Afghanistan with, with Zach kind of growing up in the mountains and along the river. And you get a guy who really loved this country and, and, and you, you hear how he heard about 9-11 when he was 11 years old. His, his father was listening to a radio, BBC radio. And, and, and so to get all these perspectives and insights, rather than what you usually get in a war book is, is the American tells you about what that country's like. 
and they spent maybe a year or two years there. And now you get a perspective from half the book is written from a perspective of someone who was born and raised in the country. And so Deck never, his motivation was never, oh, I want to go to, I want to join with America to, to go to America. Like that, like he wanted, he, he saw the Americans as uh, contributing to security, to stability, to governance, to schooling, to opportunities for girls. And he said, look, uh, these things were never going to happen under the Taliban. And it looks like the best option for our country to to make some progress is to work with these guys. And so that was really his motivation is, is it, is, is how can I help secure a brighter future for Afghanistan? And, and he saw what, when, when Americans came to his province and, and started to build schools and started to build some roads and, and, the, and, and for the first time girls were able to go to school, he said, okay, like if this is what these guys are bringing, let, let, let me let me throw my hat in with them, and and uh, that's kind of that his overall uh, how he he lands with us. I got to ask as somebody that's been there and knows you know Zach so well, like a brother. Was it that they knew that the Taliban was holding them back from all these things, and they wanted it, or was it that some men and women and young men and women over there had just never experienced what it was like to go to school for women to be treated somewhat equally for people to both be employable, you know, men and women? Was it that they didn't know or was it that they knew that these Taliban guys were bogus and just holding them back, but they didn't ever want to say anything for fear of retribution? Yeah, Zach only knew life under Taliban rule, but his father certainly had opportunities and, and knew a Afghanistan prior to, to the Taliban. And so I, I think, uh, every generation, you know, there was maybe a generation removed from the Taliban oppression. And so certainly, um, Zach grew up knowing that the tyranny of the Taliban was stifling and that that's not what the Afghan people want for themselves. And so he had ambitions for education outside of just the strict madrasa kind of indoctrination that, that, that the Taliban offer. And certainly his, his father instilled in him that there's a Afghanistan with greater freedoms and liberties that is worth pursuing. So I, I think many of the people know their history, know that, that Afghanistan has been a, at times like a really kind of progressive culture and um, that it was really being stifled and oppressed through Taliban rule. And I think you'll get that through Zach's chapters in the book. It's crazy to think that like of a certain age group, you wouldn't know life in Afghanistan without Taliban, but your parents' generation would have remembered a freer, more open society where you could have a job. You could go to school no matter what you were, no matter where you live. And we'll be back with more from Marine Corps Major Tom Schumann when CBS Eye on Veterans returns. back at CBS Eye on Veterans, reporting for ConnectingVets.com. I'm Navy vet Phil Briggs, and today we're looking at a book by Marine Corps Major Tom Schumann entitled Always Faithful, the story of the war in Afghanistan, the fall of Kabul, and the unshakable bond between a Marine and an interpreter. The story is that of a harrowing escape from Afghanistan in the final hours before the U.S. military evacuated and the country fell back into the deadly hands of the Taliban. And it's told in first person by both Tom and his loyal interpreter, Zanula Zaki. During our interview, we talked in depth about the details behind the scenes and how he helped sneak Zach and his family out of the country. Uh, Zach had started to apply for a visa in 2016. 
uh, again, Zach never wanted to go to America. He wanted to grow up and raise his family in his province. But it became to the point where he had been poisoned. He was under constant persecution. He could no longer leave his home. He couldn't work. He was receiving uh, death threats constantly. And he said, well, this is, you know, unfortunately, I, I cannot live like this. I have to I have to take up this visa program, which is we, we created this visa program specifically for people like Zach who were being persecuted because they served alongside their U.S. allies. And so Zach met all the criteria and eligibility requirements for this visa. But because of some red tape, we can never we spent you know five years applying, getting rejections, and could never overcome some of the bureaucracy of this this visa application. Well, when the president announced that we were leaving Afghanistan in April 2021, I said, what, "What's going to happen if there's you know if the Taliban comes back? And there's no U.S. forces." And Zach said, "I'll be I'll be killed certainly, and my family will be killed." And so that's when we really kind of earnestly went to work about getting him and his family out. And we still were going to try to work through the process. So Zach goes from his province in Kunar to Kabul. And then uh, I knew some Marines on the ground there. And so we tried to get his family out twice uh, through some Marine points of contact that I had that were working security at the gates. And both times the situation deteriorated as his family arrived at the airport and Taliban shooting in the crowds and, and children getting trampled and both times very close calls with his own children almost getting killed and, and has to leave the airport twice. And then on a third attempt, I knew a uh, Marine pilot who had done a transfer to the Air Force. He was on the ground there and he was in the operations center and I was able to make a phone, well, not a phone call, but I sent him a message and, and he has to jump the gate and it's all very... uh just touch and go and extremely risky and extremely dangerous. And after three attempts, we were able to get Zach and his family out. Never through the system. It was through the personal initiative of a friend of mine who kind of broke some orders and jumped the fence and went and grabbed my friend Zach and his family. And uh, but yeah, extremely harrowing. And, uh, and the entire thing was nerve wracking. Amazing. And I've heard some similar stories. Again, there's an incredible army veteran out there with no one left behind, uh, Matt Zeller, and he's out there advocating right now to bring about legislation to ensure that we can bring home more or bring to our country more of our Afghan allies. Um, how do you feel about our government's performance? whether or not you want to pin it on a single administration or whether you just want to say State Department as a whole. But, I mean, how do you grade us or what are your feelings about the U.S. government's withdrawal? I'm still active duty. So I, I think, you know, people can make their observations of what happened last year and, and draw their own conclusions. I, I will say that um, what we must do collectively as a society, as a government, as a DOD, as a DOS, is look at what happened in Afghanistan and say, what lessons? can be learned? And, and how can we make sure that we don't make those mistakes again? We have the duty to at least really take a hard look and examine if there are failures, where did they originate? And how can we make sure that we never repeat them? Like that, that's what we have to do. And then, uh, you know, I am not, uh, I, there, there's no need for me to kind of talk higher strategy level stuff where I, my, my experience is the tactical level. And I can talk tactically, you know, right up until the end, like tactically, we were winning our battles. Like we won the battle and saying it. And, and tactically, these Marines from 2-1 and 1-8, they were out there at the Abbey Gate, uh, at the airport security around HKIA. It was incredible what these young men and women, 18-year-old Marines 
and soldiers did right up until the end in that war. And, and, and they, they were given an impossible task and they held the line and, and 13 of them gave their lives doing it. And so I, I want to highlight that tactically the, the, the young enlisted soldier, sailor, airmen and Marine were there until the end and doing the best they could uh, with the mission that they were given. And I don't, I, I keep forgetting your active duty major. So I don't mean to get you into a discussion about your opinions because I realize, uh, certainly with active duty status, you, uh, you know, you don't make too many broad brushed comments about political affairs or about issues. Uh, but I know in your heart, after even writing this book, it had to be frustrating knowing that your brother and his family were there and you, you were felt so handicapped by bureaucracy, by the, by the fundamental flow and that hoping an after action report reveals lessons that we could do better um, is optimistic because uh, I know that they didn't read the one after Vietnam. The State Department clearly took no lessons from the 1970s. And this this NEO just couldn't have you know gone worse, in my estimation, from here in the cheap seats. But uh, uh, the bonds that were forged really are priceless. And uh, if I could just ask real quick, what was one moment when you just knew that your interpreter was going to be way more than a colleague, but but that this would be a lifelong friend. We were heading into a village and Zach was monitoring the Taliban radio and, and he could hear that they were about to start a an ambush. And he's telling me, hey, we got to hurry up. We got to hurry up and or we're going to get caught in this ambush. But there's a young 18-year-old engineer sweeping for mines up in the front of the patrol. And you, you, you really can't ask that guy to walk any faster than he's comfortable with. And uh, Zach said, well, this is going to take too long. And so he took off through what we knew was an active minefield and went and found the Taliban commander. He was able to correlate where he was coordinating this ambush and went in and tackled him and detained him until we got there with no no rifle with anything. And, and so that's not someone who's there just to translate. That's not someone who's just an interpreter. That's someone who's, who's there fighting alongside us. And he really just became one of us, uh, a guy who was willing to take the fight to the enemy to share the same kind of risks. And uh, there's several examples in the book like that, where Zach really went above and beyond his duties. And we've developed that kind of brotherhood Marine mentality. Absolutely love it. The war stories I've read that are written by Marines are so vivid and so good. Your book, I put right up there with like echo and Ramadi and some of the other ones that I've read over the years, uh, some inspiration at the end because it is the story of the unbreakable bond between you and your interpreter. Um, if you had to give the book a moral of the story or one of the solid takeaways I'll have about life after reading this book, what is it? Yeah, that always faithful uh, or semper fidelis in, in marine terms in Latin, you know, it, you, you've got to put the emphasis on the always or the semper. You know, it's easy to be faithful sometimes. It's easy to be faithful most of the time. What what makes what what makes always faithful more than just a motto or just some hollow words is, is the actions that you that drive you to to maintain that always. It's, it's so easy to be faithful or committed to something when all the conditions are great and it's sunny and everything. It's what what's unique about the Marines is that you know we're no better friend, no worse enemy in, in any and all situations, and, and kind of that that commitment um, that we make and so. We've got to keep our promises. We've got to live up to our motto of, of being always faithful. And that's a wrap for this week. I'm Navy vet Phil Briggs, and I'll be back again next week with more great military stories when CBS Eye on Veterans returns. 
Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. Okay. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.